1825 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. A little relieved to reach the end of an eventful week. Ah. <laughs> Apologies to Tyler Anderson and Luke Voigt, but there haven't been any additional huge moves that we have to discuss today. Although we did get a few tidbits about deals that we already discussed. Apparently, a significant chunk of Freddie Freeman's contract with the Dodgers is deferred oh. over 2028 through 2040, which is not unusual for the Dodgers, but evidently brings the real value of the deal down to about $140 million, which is basically what the Braves were reported to have offered him over five years instead of six. So makes it even more curious, really. We talked about that a little last time with the different tax rates in Georgia and California and how he ended up not really making much more money than he would have by taking that Braves deal. Seems like, if anything, he may have made less in present-day dollars. So that whole situation, it's just surprising that it played out that way. And there's a big Buster-only feature about it in which Freeman is not quoted, but Chipper Jones is extensively quoted and other sources. And really sounds like this was not what Freeman set out to do or necessarily wanted to happen. And things just played out this way. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess we should say like Chipper Jones also works for the press. Yes, he does. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there's that to yeah. consider. I mean, I think that Freeman had been pretty clear from the jump that he wanted six years. I know that the deferral mm-hmm. kind of complicates how we interpret that, but it sounds like he wanted six and Atlanta never offered him that. And no, they, they didn't did. really reach out that extensively over the offseason prior to the lockout or even in the, the days following it. So I don't know, man, like he's he gets to decide where he wants to go. And if feeling like he was you know, in demand was important to him and he felt badly about not being offered that six year and he felt like he should have been maybe treated differently. Like, I can't begrudge Mm -hmm. him that. I don't know. Like, the whole TikTok of this is like not super interesting to me. I think it's (laughs) interesting from the Braves perspective because like you had this franchise icon and you had to make a decision about whether you wanted to retain him. I think the fact that they did not try to do that more aggressively before they knew for sure they could trade for Matt Olson is weird. Yeah. (laughs) One thing in that story, it sounds like that deal came together like incredibly quickly. Yes. (laughs) Like they just kind of cut off talks with Freeman and then suddenly Anthopolis just like texted Billy Beans like, what do we have to give you for Matt Olson? And then that came together very quickly. And then the extension came together even more quickly. So yeah, no one knew that it was going to work out that way. It's just like the sixth year, it it seems like it was mostly a principal thing. Maybe. I mean, he felt 
felt like he deserved a six year. I understand why. And the Braves, for whatever reason, just were not willing to go there. As it turned out, I don't know that he ended up making more money with the six years than he would have with the five year offer he had on the table. But as we discussed previously, like it all worked out fine from yep. a lot of perspectives. The Braves got a great first baseman. Freddie Freeman got a good deal and gets to go to a good team near his hometown. So it all worked out okay. It's not a disaster or anything, but yeah. it just doesn't seem like either party really saw things playing out this way, like right up until the moment when it actually happened. Yeah, it is fascinating in that respect, but yeah, what a weird, yeah. I don't know, what a weird bit of business. And the other detail that came to light. So according to Patrick Saunders, Denver Post beat writer for the Rockies, Chris Bryant's contract does not contain an opt-out clause. It does, as was previously reported, contain a no-trade clause. So Chris Bryant cannot opt out of the Rockies, and the Rockies cannot opt out of Chris Bryant. So we'll see if this lasts. He did say that he plans to be there for the full seven years. I would imagine that everyone who signs a contract probably plans to be there, but sometimes those plans go awry, but it will be tough for each side to extricate themselves from the situation. Hopefully the need won't arise. Also, there was a, a press conference, I guess, and he was introduced and he was asked whether the Rockies could contend for the playoffs and he says of course and he noted I have never been on a losing team in my big league career which is debatable because he was on the 2021 Cubs and that was a losing team in fairness to him I guess they were only three games under 500 when they actually traded him right and, and he didn't finish got... the year with them so yeah so he could say well maybe we would have been a winning team if I had been there all year and they hadn't traded everyone. So I guess that kind of counts. But <laughs> what else is he going to say? I mean, when you ask the new acquisition, can this team contend? Well, yeah, of course they're going to say that and maybe they actually believe it. But we talked yesterday about how maybe winning or, or being on the best team would not be the number one item on our wish list or our top criterion when deciding where to go. And we don't know how Bryant values that. But I didn't note yesterday that, I mean, he already kind of had the best possible outcome for winning, right? I mean, he yeah. won a World Series, the most exciting World Series that he possibly could have won. He was 24 years old. He won an MVP that year. He broke the Cubs curse. He even got an assist on the World Series yeah. ending play. So I don't know whether that means he feels like, well, I checked off that box and now I can just go where I want to play and where I make money and where I'm happy, or whether that gives you a taste for winning and it's like, oh, this is just what it's going to be like from now on and I want to recapture that high. But like, there's no way that you can top that probably like to win a World Series for the Cubs after forever and do it as a star player with the organization you came up with. I mean... Even if he had gone somewhere, if he had gone to some other team that was more likely to win a World Series over the life of this deal, I don't know that the thrill of that could compare to the first time for him. So that makes it even less essential in my mind. Again, don't know whether he thinks of it that way, but yeah. that's how I would be thinking of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the... he's a, He is such an interesting sort of case in that regard because I would imagine that if you were to sort of chart the trajectory of you know, how much you care about being able to win versus not in a in a good player's career that the longer you're in the league without having won, the more winning matters to you, right? Like, 
I bet, oh, this is such a sad example, but I bet if you had asked like 2015 Felix Hernandez, does winning matter to you? He would have been like, yes, I would yeah. very much like to win, right? Mm-hmm. And he had such a, a bright start to his career, both in terms of the, the personal accolades that he accrued and the success of his team. And so I wonder for him if, you know, he's not going to say in the press conference, we're not going to win. Like that, you know, he's not going to say that, but he might be kind of clear-eyed about what the road is to the Rockies contending and be sort of at peace with that being a bit more winding than it might have been if he had gone to other teams because mm-hmm. of that early career success, both, as I said, personally and then within the context of the Cubs. So I don't know. He's an interesting test case. Like I imagine that it is perhaps for some players a very strong motivator, and I would imagine for all players presented with relatively equal deals that it might be a really compelling tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you are being offered, you know, a bunch of money from a club that is so-so versus like so-so money from a club that is excellent, you are quite understandably going to prioritize your own security and financial future and that of your family over the immediacy of a ring. Because I also think that baseball players probably understand that like the the tides change, right? And mm-hmm. teams get better, whether that will be true of the Rockies. I mean- who is to say? But, you know, that things can kind of shift around and that especially with an expanded playoff field that your odds of getting back to the postseason are are appreciably different than they were even a couple of weeks ago. Yep. <laughs> Again, maybe not for Colorado right now, but like in general. And so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that calculus kind of shifts over time. So. Yeah, we also got a Boris quote out of the press conference because he was asked what other teams were in the running for Bryant. And Boris said, when I go to a wedding, I don't talk about the bridesmaids. So he would not (laughs) he would not reveal what other teams were bidding on Bryant, if any. (laughs) That one makes more sense than the typical Boris quote. I get it. Yeah, that's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, what I want to know is like, what do you talk about at a wedding, Scott? (laughs) I bet it's baseball. Like, I'm sure that he talked about, you know, Probably talks about like opt-outs and Mm -hmm. 10 and 2 rights and all sorts of stuff. Okay, so we are doing an email show today, and we're about to be joined by an Effectively Wild listener and Patreon supporter, Kevin Bratzman, who has been one of our highest tier supporters for a while now and thus has qualified to join us for an email episode, which is always fun. So just one thing before we bring him on, I wanted to do a a quick pre-email stat blast. They'll take a deed as a sword if I something like ERA minus or OBS plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today's podcast. This is prompted in part by my rant the other day about people calling the automatic runner, which we have called the zombie runner, the ghost runner. And as we have established, it should not be called a ghost runner. I will not repeat the rant here, but I have seen other people take up that clarion call in recent days. So if we're stuck with this thing, then I hope we can all agree on zombie runner instead. But there is a question that we got about a real ghost player and this comes from max who says 
I'm slowly coming to grips with the fact that I will never play professional baseball, much like one of my favorite scenes from the West Wing where Donna challenges Sam and Josh's expectation that they could. It'll take his assistant Donna five minutes. It'll take Josh half that time. Really? Maybe a little longer because the Mets lost last night and he'll need to focus. Just throw strikes. I don't understand why that can't happen. You have a three-run lead. Just throw strikes. I mean, my God. Honestly. Yes. You want to see the wires? I'll tell you something else. In a situation with a runner on first who's a threat to score and a batter at the plate who's going to be intentionally passed, why not just pitch out four times? Makes me nutsy. What are the wires? The latest on the standoff in Iowa, the final recommendation from the debate commission, and Richie to the AMA, which just ended a few minutes ago. Give me the AMA. And you have seen your staff. You know, there comes a day in every man's life, and it's a hard day, but there comes a day when he realizes he's never going to play professional baseball. And you're just having that day today? Yes, I am. You understand, you're going to be walking the guy anyway. You're going to be throwing four balls. Why not just... Pitch up. Yeah, why not just, you know, to catch the runner. But I was wondering what I could do if I were a fill-in now and kind of acknowledge that I probably shouldn't swing. What is the longest stretch of anyone's career in which they've had at bats where they haven't had to swing? So strikeouts or walks or hit by pitches. And I don't know if it's possible to find out, but what about also considering appearances where a ball was not hit to them? Essentially a ghost player. So Mm. a legitimate ghost player who makes next to no impact on the game or at least would make the same impact that you or I could if we just sort of stood there in theory. And I think we may have gotten this question before, at least about how long players in the field have gone without having a ball hit to them. But I don't know if we ever answered it in a satisfactory way. So I brought this to frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson, and this is one of the more computationally intensive Stat Blasts that he has managed to do, but he got an answer and he got his query down to run in hours instead of days as it was initially, and we have an answer here. So the longest that anyone has ever gone without having a ball hit to them So he measured the streak by consecutive player events, as he called them, the player had without, quote unquote, interacting with the ball. So a player event would be a plate appearance on offense and a defensive batter faced on defense, an opportunity, some reason for you to touch the ball. So on offense, this means not putting the ball into play. So a walk, a strikeout, a drop third strike, or a hit by pitch, which is interacting with the ball, obviously, but this is what a normal person could do if you just stood there, and in theory, that could still happen, and it wouldn't change any of the longest streaks anyway. On defense, this means completely avoiding the ball. So you can't catch it, you can't throw it, No relay throws, just complete avoidance of the ball. It's the opposite of that saying that people say, oh, the ball finds you out there. This is the ball not finding you out there. So the longest streak by that metric of not touching the ball on defense or offense is Corey Snyder for Cleveland in 1987. And he went 100 consecutive player events or ghost events in his case, spanning three different games and 17 innings. So no one has ever done this for two full games in a row, which sort of surprised Ryan and maybe me a little bit too. But Snyder played left field and right field during those games, and he just could have sat down or gone back to the dugout because he was not needed out there. And after that, it's Sam Hilliard of the Rockies, who came in second just in 2019, actually. 
He had 84 events and 15 innings. Third is Eddie Williams, who was actually a teammate of Corey Snyder's same team, same year, 81 events with Cleveland in 1987. And Ryan Zimmerman for the Nats in 2012. He also had 81 events over 17 innings. And all of those guys took offers as well. So Corey Snyder, for instance, was 0 for 5 with five strikeouts and a walk during those innings, those games, when he was not touching the ball in the field either. And that was, by the way, August 19th, 1987 through August 21st, 1987, if you want to look up the game logs when Corey Snyder didn't do anything. I believe he was pinch hit for maybe before the end of the third game. They wanted to get someone in there who would actually do something. Those are the records for just defense, too, if we take out the offensive requirement of not touching the ball. Those are still the longest number of defensive plays or innings that someone went without having the ball get to them. I think it was 94 defensive batters faced that Snyder was standing out there without having a ball touch his person in any meaningful way. I did ask Ryan about the record for just offense, so being at the plate but not putting the ball in play. How many consecutive plate appearances can you go? And in that case, the record is Daniel Cabrera, who was an American League pitcher. And from June of 2007 to May of 2009, he had a streak of 15 plate appearances where he went 0 for 14 with 14 strikeouts and one walk. Bring on the universal DH, thank you. And the record for an actual hitter is Mark McGuire, August 8th through 10th, 1999. He went 13 plate appearances without putting the ball in play. He hit a deep fly in a home run, and then he went walk, intentional walk, walk, strikeout, intentional walk, strikeout, walk, walk, strikeout, walk, strikeout, strikeout, strikeout. And then after that, he doubled and homered. Wow. Ryan noted, given that there are about 38 plate appearances in an average game, plus four plate appearances for the average hitter, a typical player has 42 opportunities in a given game to do something, to put the ball in play or have the ball put in play toward them. And about 2,000 players have had a streak of 42 or longer in their career. But doing it twice in a row is essentially impossible, and it hasn't happened, which is kind of weird. But you basically have to be an outfielder or a third baseman yeah. to, to have a chance at this record. Because uh, obviously, if you're you know a shortstop or you're a first baseman, the ball is going to find you at certain positions. A catcher, of course. Right. Don't know how a catcher could not touch the ball out there. So yeah, you At least not in key their job for very long yeah right <laughs> so you have to be a corner outfielder or possibly a, a third baseman you have fewer balls hit to you and that's how it happened and curiously the 87 team that Snyder and Williams were on they had the lowest or second lowest strikeout rate by their pitching staff because I wondered well maybe they just struck out a ton of guys and didn't have a lot of balls put in play against them but no they actually had more than almost any other team but it just so happened that Corey Snyder just could have not shown up for work for those days. So I think we've been asked that before and people have wondered about that because they have wondered how much they would embarrass themselves if they were to suit up. And if you got really lucky, you absolutely could stand out there for a game and not touch the ball and also not touch it at the plate. But that wouldn't be that weird to do it for a single game. It has happened thousands of times. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to Ryan for running the numbers on that, and thanks to Max for the question. And now we can bring on our guest to tackle some additional emails. 
All right. Well, we are joined now by Fangraphs and Effectively Wild listener Kevin Bratzman. He is also a Patreon supporter. And for a couple months, he has been at the Mike Trout tier of Patreon support, the highest level, which entitles him to join us on the podcast. And so he has. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I think this is my traditional first question every time we have a Patreon (laughs) supporter on the podcast, which is, A, how did you find Effectively Wild? And B, what got into you that you would support us at such a high tier that you could come on the podcast with us? Well, I've been listening since 2016. Uh, I was honestly racking my brain to remember how I found the podcast. (laughs) I believe it was because... I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan, and Mm -hmm. I found you during the uh, season previews. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. So I'm trying to remember 2016 might have still been uh, Britt Giroli. Yeah, that that confirms my sense that there are people who find us through the season previews, and I guess that will maybe not be happening this year because we're not going whole hog with the team-by-team previews. But that's good because I always wonder what people think when they find us through the team previews, and then suddenly we're talking about weird hypotheticals the next time out. (laughs) (laughs) This is not what was advertised on the box, but evidently we hooked you somehow. Yes, you certainly did, and I had some familiarity with Sam through some of his writing beforehand. Mm -hmm. So once I started listening, kind of wondered what had taken me so long. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, similarly, uh, I was a big fan of Jeff Sullivan back to his um, lookout landing days. So, um, you know, I think I came in at the very tail end of uh, Sam's first turn as co-host and, Mm -hmm. You know, was delighted when Jeff came on board and certainly become a big fan of yours and Meg's as well. And as far as what would possess me to be a Mike (laughs) Trout level donor, uh, some of it, again, I've been listening for almost six years now, is kind of seems like back dues to me (laughs) but also my kind and generous wife janet gave me a uh, subscription for a few months for a christmas gift Uh uh-huh yeah i like that i wish that more people would uh give the gift of effectively (laughs) wild for the holidays seems like a great gift idea to me yeah i mean holidays birthdays uh Arbor Day, underrated yes. gift day, Arbor Day, you know, <laughs> could be given gifts on Arbor Day. That's how you found your way to the podcast, but what is your what is your baseball origin story? <laughs> I was going to say, just to jump in, you informed us before we started recording that you are an Orioles season ticket holder, and I would... <laughs> feel better about the fact that you have listened to us for so long, if not for the fact that clearly your loyalties are very difficult to dislodge (laughs) because (laughs) you are still an Orioles season ticket holder. And if they haven't lost you yet, then I don't know what we could do. We could publish dead air for an hour and you might still (laughs) listen. So (laughs) I don't know how flattered to be. Well, hopefully neither you nor the Orioles trade Trey Mancini. That would be a a tough Uh pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. So I am, I think, a a few years older than both of you, an elder millennial. I'll Mm -hmm. be turning 40 in August. But yeah, I wasn't a big sports fan as a kid. It was really, I was about 10 years old. I just remember getting hooked in 1993. And, you know, the 
Orioles. I don't know if you remember. I mean, they are my hometown team, obviously. Mm-hmm. They were a competitive team in the mid-90s. But that year, they were kind of up and down, had a 10-game winning streak at one point during the summer and ended up fading and finishing in third. But obviously with Cal Ripken in town, you know, he was a big draw. But that also means that my first full season as a fan, full season in (laughs) scare quotes, was 1994. (laughs) So yeah, that didn't end well. And again, you know, I don't know what that says about me if I'm a glutton for punishment. But this will be my uh, 10th season as a season ticket holder. So I did at least get some, (laughs) you know, some spoils for that. You know, I was able to be there in 2014 when they clinched the East Division for the first time since 1997 and was there for both of the round one games against Detroit when they beat Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander back-to-back. And then uh, I don't think there was an ALCS that year. I don't remember that happening. (laughs) In the leaner years that have come subsequently, have you contemplated not renewing? Did the thought cross your mind? Was was your breaking point... 46 wins and they just managed to clear it in 2018 or is it that you just like going to the ballpark and regardless of whether you're gonna see a good game or at least a good team in your orioles uniforms yeah i mean that's a big part of it you know camden yards obviously is a beautiful stadium even 30 years in they've kept it up well so Um, You know, it's nice to get the fresh air, (laughs) but (laughs) also, so I have a 29 game plan. That's, you know, sort Uh of the, uh, the partials, the mid tier plan. And my sister has the other ticket. So, you know, now that we're both adults and working and, you know, I have a, a son of my own, it's a really good chance to get to see her a couple times a week during the summer and spend some time together Mm -hmm. so you know there's kind of that family pull to it yeah i understand that you know it almost has to get better i say as i (laughs) learned that uh adley rutschman is out for the next two or three weeks with a sore elbow (laughs) yeah i mean you can get fresh air for free but maybe not the companionship and the day at the ballpark and Mm -hmm. seeing your sister so that's something and when things get good again then you will know that you've stuck with them i guess when they totally bottomed out and there are things to look forward to Yeah, I I don't know if there are any uh, bonus points for longevity or for not front running, but I guess it fits my sensibilities. (laughs) You brought up Rutschman. I'm curious if in this period you have found yourself drawn to prospects in a way that you perhaps might not have been when the the big league club was putting a, a more competitive squad on the field. There is, you know, obviously some draw to that. I went to see Grayson Rodriguez's first start in Bowie last year with uh, Rutschman catching at Double A, and you know that that was a wild atmosphere. Fans were bringing in empty gas cans, <laughs> and again, I will emphasize that they were empty. But you know, the Bay Sox 
encouraged uh, fans to to do that. They kind of rolled with the punches, <laughs> and it was a really exciting atmosphere. Obviously, I read uh, Fangraphs prospect rankings for the Orioles. Uh, you know, paying close attention earlier this year, but you know, I do have a long memory, and there's something about having a mythical prospect uh, catcher that rings a little familiar. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I've got that guarded optimism. <laughs> and Matt Weeders, I think, you know, just wore down. Uh, I understand that catching is tough. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't realize in hindsight, you know, what a good result it was for him to be yeah, you know, an all-star and a, a gold glover and to have a, yeah. a 10-year career that he did. Yeah, we're all going to be paying for that Pakota projection for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so because we have an Orioles fan on here, I have two things to bring up before we get to some emails. So one, I don't know whether you saw Ken Rosenthal's latest notes column or some of the other rumors that have been circulating about a Carlos Correa connection to the Orioles. Have you even entertained the idea? Are you getting your hopes up even in the slightest? Let me just read from Ken here. The 2012 draft was most notable for the Astros' selection of Carlos Correa over Byron Buxton and others with the number one pick. Michael Elias, the Astros' amateur scouting director then, was the driving force behind the Correa pick. And now that Elias is the Orioles' GM, it stands to reason he would have interest in Correa, the top remaining free agent. Elias seemed to dismiss the idea on Monday, telling reporters it was unlikely the rebuilding Orioles would offer any free agent a multi-year contract. But Correa, according to a source with knowledge of the Orioles' thinking, might be an exception if his price dropped to a level the club deemed appropriate. I don't know what that level would be. It could be $10 million. (laughs) It might be far too low for this to ever happen. But I can kind of squint and sort of see it. Like, it's extremely unlikely. But if they were to do it, it would be less confusing to me than, say, the Rockies signing Chris Bryant. Like, the Orioles should be good again if all goes well at some point when Carlos Correa is not too far gone and and advanced in age and in his next contract so he's young enough that he could be a cornerstone player for them i feel bad even like raising your hopes in the slightest degree if i am so so please don't but i wonder if you have a reaction as an orioles fan who has been starved for big additions lately yeah i feel like those rumors have been out there on a smaller scale for a couple weeks some mm-hmm. of the orioles fans and uh, writers that I follow on Twitter have been keying into a Spanish language reporter. I believe mm-hmm. the name's Raul Ramos. I don't have it off the top of my head, but you know, this is somebody with a a blue check mark for all that may be worth, <laughs> who's been distributing these Correa rumors for a few weeks. And well, we know he would certainly fit a hole. Um, but like you said i believe i heard the other day that the last multi-year contract the orioles signed a free agent to was alex cobb (laughs) you know once again we know how that worked out and that was one of dan duquette's last deals so believe me i don't 
think it's possible for me to get my hopes up too much uh, because, you know, that's a perfectly normal offseason trajectory. Let's see, they've picked up Rugnetto Door, uh, Jordan Lyles, uh, Chris Owings, Robinson Chirinos, and, you know, Carlos Correa. Sure. Yeah. Stall. Just to round it out. Yeah. yeah birds of a feather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other one that I wanted to get your reaction on, I guess you probably remember the Ryan Flaherty era of the Orioles, and maybe that coincided with the beginning of your time as a season ticket holder, roughly. So here is a tweet from Orioles beat writer for MLB.com, Joe Trezza, former Orioles previewer on Effectively Wild. Buck Walter said today, Friday, one reason Ryan Flaherty made the Orioles as a Rule 5 pick in 2012 was because he brought two monkeys to a camp talent show that spring. The monkeys threw batting practice, and the Orioles were later fined by the health department, Showalter said. Now, there were a few more details provided by Stephanie Epstein, who says... Buck Showalter says, as part of a talent show one year with the Orioles, Ryan Flaherty brought a pair of monkeys who threw and took batting practice. Showalter says that's part of why he made the team. Quote, that took guts. <laughs> the quote continues, it was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen. We got a call from the Humane Society and from the Health Department. And Stephanie says, I pushed back on this a little bit. First of all, the monkeys both threw and took BP? Buck says, yes, one threw, one hit. So not two-way monkeys also shouldn't Flaherty have been disqualified what was his talent Buck quote there were other parts of the presentation he declined to elaborate well (laughs) I had uh seen the Treza tweet Mm -hmm. not the uh supplementary information from uh Stephanie (laughs) Epstein Mm -hmm. and I always had the sense because if you look at Ryan Flaherty's stats. I mean, he was kind of a super sub guy, a mm-hmm. little pop, but you know, he, you know, was never really a productive player. I think we used to say kind of tongue in cheek that he was uh Buck's mascot. <laughs> and um yeah, so that certainly fills out the picture a little bit. <laughs> tracks, yeah. Sometimes you hear like, oh, this guy must have like compromising photos of the manager. Like that's <laughs> how he's holding onto his roster spot. But no, maybe he just brought two monkeys to a talent show in spring training. Yeah, the the mind boggles to imagine what else. Like, did he have a who's on first routine with the monkeys? Right. You know, did they maybe pantomime some? Beatles music. Uh. (laughs) The other question, I guess, is how much better have the recent Orioles been than the monkeys themselves? What is their value over replacement batting (laughs) practice monkey? It can't Uh, be that high. I don't know. If only I had seen the uh, 1990s uh, film classic Ed, which I believe was (laughs) uh, Matt LeBlanc and a baseball playing monkey. Yes. I mean, the post I might have a career after Friends, Matt LeBlanc era, which took a little while to get off and and running. I wondered, like, were there other animals in the menagerie? Was it just two monkeys or were there other? Does he have like a a wildlife refuge that we need to be worried is going to be built into a Netflix series? Like, what are we we talking about here? Yeah, need to know more. This Mm -hmm. is a, a prime opportunity for someone to do an oral history of some sort, just Every answer prompts many new questions. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things that makes you wonder how they kept this buttoned up for a decade. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 
you'd think, you know, baseball writers are pretty desperate during spring training. I mean, I haven't <laughs> mm-hmm. checked the archives to see if this was reported at the time and somehow lost to history, but you'd think that this would have been one of those, you know, little local color spring training stories, feel good players in the best shape of his life and also brought monkeys that pitched and hit batting practice, but evidently not. Anyway, glad it came to light. Maybe it's one of those things where you just have to wait 10 years. It's like too sensitive for it to come out more quickly than that. So now the time is right. Yeah, if there were health department sanctions involved, yeah, maybe there was a a legal embargo. (laughs) Could be. Well, now that we've established that and uh, talked a little bit about your podcast fandom and Orioles fandom, and we wish you the best and better days ahead with or without Carlos Correa, but maybe we can answer a few emails here and you have not seen them in advance. You did not request emails ahead of time, so very courageous of you. And I'll start with one by William, and William, I believe, is a PhD student in political science, so Meg, some of this may be familiar to you. Oh, no, the stakes are high. (laughs) William says, given that it seems very likely there will be a pre-arbitration bonus pool tied to war in the upcoming CBA, this is before we knew that, in fact, there is, I have been thinking about the problem posed by Goodhart's Law. Charles Goodhart is an economist and central banker who argued that once a particular measurement becomes a policy target, it ceases to be a useful metric. In economics, this refers to issues with measuring the strength of the economy based on particular statistical aggregates, for example, the unemployment rate. In a vacuum, this rate is useful because it provides information on changes in the labor force, etc., but it can be highly problematic when the rate itself becomes the focus of policy, as government bureaucracies and politicians begin to have incentives to either distort the underlying numbers, or they may alter policies to maximize the metric at the expense of the underlying concept the metric is intended to describe like creating a large number of low-paying jobs rather than focusing on improving working conditions. Although statistics are an important measure of player quality in baseball, to date they have always been one step removed from being targets that the players themselves are trying to maximize aside from record chases. Arbitration and free agency rewards players with good statistics, but not for performance in only one statistic and not in a way that is directly calculated in relation to any statistic or group of statistics. The pre-arbitration bonus pool changes this. Here, a group of players are directly rewarded for maximizing one particular target, albeit an aggregated one, in a way that is calculable in real time. As a result, players who are pool eligible have an incentive to try to maximize their war as a goal of their behavior rather than their war being simply a description of their trying to win games by playing well. We don't know the exact contours of how this version of war will be calculated, but assuming it is broadly similar to BREF or Fangraph's war, are there any ways for players to change their behavior to deliberately maximize their war that is suboptimal from a team perspective, i.e. trying to win games? I think this question, players maximizing war, has been discussed, but I'm not sure it has in this particular context, which is soon to become a reality. So is there a way for players who knew that they are being paid directly related to their war to inflate their war in some way that would not actually reflect their contributions to the team? Well, I don't know that I would describe it as inflate their war in a way that doesn't benefit the team. Some of this is going to depend a great deal on the the details of the war metric they use, because the thing that jumps out to me as something that might 
I mean, it'll help the team and it'll be good for the player in theory, but it might not be in line with some fans' preferred aesthetic is that, you know, if they use a fit-based war, there's even more incentive to strike a lot of guys out if you're a pitcher in this, right? That's the one that jumps out to me. Now, I don't think that this changes the value calculus of that behavior all that much. I think that given the way that the game has trended in recent years, that that pitchers are already incentivized to strike a bunch of guys out. Like that is the way that we have leaned into player dev. But Mm -hmm. if they use a version of war that is akin to our FIP-based version of war, then you have potentially additional incentive to strike out as many guys as you can because you are going to do better by that metric in that way. But I don't know if it changes things all that much. I don't think that it decouples the incentives for the player from what benefits the team, but it might result in um, a furthering of a version of baseball that some people find to be kind of boring because it it leads to fewer balls in play. Yeah, and there's the possibility that this formula could be tampered with somehow. I mean, I think that's one reason why public-facing sites like Fancrafts don't really want to be responsible for this sort of thing is like who wants to actually control players' salaries and have anyone question whether you are somehow cooking the books. So presumably that could not be the case. Hopefully if this is a, a joint transparently developed metric that MLB and the union works on together and they agree beforehand on how are we going to reward this what is going to go into it what are the inputs you can't change it at least until after the season let's say so hopefully it's not something that could be manipulated that way and i think it does help that it's war it's not like i don't know sacrifice bunts or something right where like you'd be incentivized to sacrifice bunts because you'd be paid for that and meanwhile that might actually be hurting your team war in theory i mean it's designed to be something that actually does reflect and measure your value to a team so i think if the stat is working correctly then the higher your war the more that you're helping in theory at least and i guess there are some ways potentially you know i mean maybe something like moving a runner over let's say where situationally I I guess it could help or like you know there's a runner on third and you're trying to hit a sack fly and maybe with war like it's not taking into account the context and the fact that you're trying to get that runner in and it's just another out potentially I mean maybe you could account for that too but something like that where you're giving yourself up to advance a runner or score a runner whereas If you're just thinking of war, you might just say, well, I want to maximize my chances of getting a hit here because that's all I'm going to be credited with in war or certain formulations of war. There are some advanced stats that have taken into account, say, advancing runners. But if you had a version that didn't, then you could just say, no, I'm out for myself. I'm going to maximize my own chances of doing something that will inflate my war here as opposed to, you know, scoring the winning run in this game. Like, that's an extreme example that comes to my mind. And the questioner, William, suggested maybe something about positioning, like players might be reluctant to move away from a premium defensive position because they could lose war. Now, that could help. I mean, if you are way better relative to the average person at the position that you're moving to, maybe it all equalizes in the end. But, you know, if you were asked to move because it was better for the team 
but you thought that it might hurt your war in some way, then that could be a sticking point. Or he said, could players become more aggressive or more passive on the base pass to try to maximize their base running war? I don't know. Maybe in that case, it would either be helping or hurting the team in a way that was commensurate with your war. But I could think of some limited cases, but because it's war and not just some single isolated stat that might not correlate as closely to your value to the team, I don't think it's as big a concern. Yeah, one thought that I had is given that they've talked about banning the shift or, you know, somehow limiting it in some way, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder how that's going to play into things. You know, mm-hmm. you might have players getting those extra, you know, five or ten base hits a year. But, you know, so I guess maybe, you know, that's a benefit to pull heavy hitters. Right. I mean, yeah, you make certain changes to the rules that would favor one type of hitter or another. Although I guess in that case, it's like that's already your skill set and you're already doing that. So it's not something conscious that you are changing about your approach potentially. But yeah, it's kind of tough. Maybe something about like pitcher usage or not wanting to go deeper into games because you might, you know, face opposing hitters a third time or fourth time and you know that it's going to hurt your stats even if like you want to soak up some innings because your bullpen needs a rest that day something like that you know any little case where maybe your personal stats might not align with the teams but I don't know it's not my primary fear about this pool and tying it to war I think aside from the possibility that it could be manipulated in some way I think what Meg said about just emphasizing certain traits that are highly valued and might not actually be fan friendly would be a concern for me all right question from Kyan is it time to start calling it the 40 person roster Instead of 40-man roster, it's more inclusive toward those who are non-binary or identify as they-slash-them pronouns and women and trans women who could eventually play in the league. So 40-person roster. And I thought this was interesting because I kind of have made more of a conscious effort to watch my pronouns when I'm talking about baseball, especially now as more and more positions that used to be exclusively the province of men long overdue but are not as much anymore and this has come up just casually as i'm writing about baseball at times without even thinking about it like at the ringer we have a great copy desk so everything i write not only goes through an initial edit but then also a fact check and a copy edit which is not the case for a lot of media outlets out there anymore and i'm very grateful for it and our copy editors our desk is always thinking about how is language evolving and how can we avoid certain sayings, certain phrases that we all take for granted but might have some etymology we're not aware of or or might have some implication that you might not think of and how can you be more thoughtful and respectful about those things. And I remember that I was writing a big feature about pitcher deception last year and there were a couple notes in there. One was that I just kind of unthinkingly referred to Yusmero Petit as a workhorse, right? Which I guess it's questionable whether a reliever can be a workhorse, <laughs> but if anyone can, it's Yusmero Petit. Yeah. But 
the desk pointed out, hey, we're just trying to avoid that kind of language when we talk about players and athletes these days, which is something that I was aware of. And it just, you know, as I was writing and words were coming out, it just slipped in there. But the idea is, hey, let's not like dehumanize the athletes. You know, let's not refer to them as livestock. Like I'm not trying to make that implication. I'm not necessarily thinking of them that way but it's you know when we talk about like players as assets and that kind of language we have tried to avoid that more and more in recent years but also in that piece I think I said something about how pitcher deception is something that has long baffled baseball men you know something like that like the saying baseball men or Mm -hmm. baseball man which is something that you hear all the time for basically like a baseball lifer you know someone who's been in the game their whole life oh that's a, a good baseball man right and i never really thought that deeply about that but of course that does kind of carry the implication that like you have to be a man to be a baseball lifer, or at least there's an expectation that you would be. And, you know, being a baseball woman would not be the same thing. And I think we changed that to baseball person or something, which, you know, sounded odd to me at first because it's it's not like ingrained in the baseball lexicon in the same way. Yeah. But it is probably better to use that term and that word. So when we're talking about 40-man roster, 40-person roster, obviously it would be an adjustment. I mean, you'd have to catch yourself many times just because we're also used to saying 40-man. But aside from that, I don't have any objection to just being as inclusive as you can be in general. And that has happened in other sports. I remember just last year, the International Cricket Council, I read, changed batsmen to the more gender-neutral batter which was already the standard in baseball, but other things along those lines could change. Yeah, I think there's a precedent for it. I mean, we've just recently, you know, Major League Baseball itself changed from the disabled list Mm -hmm. to the injured list. Exactly, right. Yeah, I think most of us have adapted to that. And I think there are some options for it, whether you say 40-person roster or 26 person roster you could also maybe just say player right yeah right (laughs) yeah yeah i think you know it doesn't seem like something that we are necessarily thinking of as having a ton of urgency now but i think the the benefit of sort of anticipatory language changes like this is that it removes the onus from players who might not be men to agitate for that change right and Mm -hmm. i imagine that when I mean, I I candidly don't know. I can't speak to like how every player in affiliated ball right now sort of understands their gender identity. I think it'd probably be naive for us to assume that there's uniformity there, right? Mm-hmm. But I imagine that when we have sort of the first player either come out in that way or the first woman in affiliated ball, like that person's going to have so much pressure already yeah. on them, right? They're going to have so many boxes they have to check there's going to be so much like scrutiny and surveillance of their performance and how they carry themselves and how they conduct themselves on the field and i think that if we can sort of pave the way in advance so that this is one less thing that that person has to do or that you know they have to do in 
in sort of isolation before there's a cohort of other players who sort of fit whatever the demographic criteria is, right? That we can just make things a little bit easier. And that's that's a worthwhile thing, I think, especially, Ben, for the reasons you've, you've brought up, which is that in other places across the game, including on the field in coaching roles, we're seeing, you know, who can occupy those positions change in a long overdue way. So I would want to think about, I like the idea of 40 player because I think that it is a more, it sort of identifies the most relevant demographic criteria about the person who's going to be on that roster, which is that they are a player of baseball. (laughs) And so I, I kind of like that. And it's, it's already inclusive and neutral as a, as a term, but yeah, I like the idea of us sort of laying track for a more inclusive game in the future so that things are just a little bit easier when the the people who are occupying previously unoccupied or at least not publicly occupied demographics assert themselves. So yeah, I kind of like it. Yeah. And I don't think that most people, when they use this language, are trying to be exclusionary or anything. It's not like when I was writing Baseball Man in that draft, I was like, you know, (laughs) suggesting that I think you should have to be a man to be in baseball. It's just one of those things you don't even think about that stems from the way that that has worked traditionally and maybe reinforces that conception. I don't know. I mean, if you're someone who is trying to break into the game and you're hearing Baseball Man and 40-man roster constantly, is that something that makes it seem more daunting to you like i'm not saying it's like the biggest obstacle obviously you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is not the biggest problem it's not the hugest uh crime that people commit with language or anything like that it's not you know the biggest thing that is in the path of people who are not men who are trying to make it in baseball there are all sorts of like more serious and, and harder to root out institutional you know obstacles there but Maybe it's a start, you know, maybe it's something that uh, you just you hear that growing up and maybe it just kind of subtly gives you the sense that like, oh, I'm not as welcome here or something or I'm going against the grain in some way. So if there is a way to easily correct that i've just tried to be conscious of that myself and you know the only downside is that like you have to catch yourself and say oh no i'm not gonna say that anymore you know or i'm used to saying it that way i'm gonna make this slight little tweak but that's not a big deal it's not a huge hardship so i guess the question is now in the rachel balkovitz era do we need to start saying personager instead of manager I'm kidding, of course, about that. That is not where that word (laughs) comes from. (laughs) Oh, Ben, you trickster. (laughs) I looked up the etymology of that word, and evidently it comes from an Italian verb, manageare, which is like to handle. Yes. (laughs) Evidently, originally, it was to handle horses, which uh, brings us right back to workhorse, I guess. (laughs) So a manager is a horse handler in a way. So you are. So now, where does the bullpen fit into this? (laughs) Oh, boy. Arm Arm barn. Yes. Exactly. Ben, I don't remember from that piece. What did you what did you end up going with as an alternative to workhorse? That's a good question. Do you recall? I do not. But See, the I fact will, that uh, you don't remember is part of what I think is a, a bolstering argument here. We just move on from these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you slip up and as long as you're like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. We'll move on. <laughs> I think most other people do, too. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, such accusations of fussiness that I don't know that are supported by <laughs> real life. 
Question from Mike. Fans like to brag about their team's World Series titles, especially when trash-talking fans of different teams. But is it fair for fans to claim titles won before they were born? If you're a 21-year-old Yankees fan, is it fair to gloat about 27 titles? Or can you really only count the 2009 win? I know fan arguments can be kind of dumb, but I've always had this question. I'm a Brewers fan, so all of this is irrelevant to me. Sorry, Mike. So, Kevin, I guess you can claim one Orioles World Series title during your lifetime, barely, (laughs) although too long ago for you to remember it. But this is an interesting question because, of course, I grew up as a Yankees fan and Yankees fans are known for saying count the rings. But most of those rings were a long time ago, depending on how old you were. And so I guess the idea of like claiming your team's titles is sort of silly to begin with or or gloating about them. It's not as if you, the fan, contributed to those, whether you were alive or not yet alive. It's not as if uh, you were out there on the field making those titles happen, although maybe you were showing your support in some way. So maybe it's no sillier to claim titles that were won before you were there to see them than it is ones that happened in your lifetime. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I see it as baseball in particular is a sport that is very drawn up in its own history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything that came before, the players and the traditions, you know, I I think it's a nice thing. Like you mentioned, I... (laughs) You know, may not have even been walking when the Orioles last uh, won the World Series in 1983. But, you know, there's still some pride in knowing, you know, hey, my team and Baltimore, uh, whether you know this or not, has a bit of a reputation for provincialism. (laughs) You know, it's kind of, you know, we're stuck in between Washington, D.C. and you know, Philadelphia and New York. And, you know, it's a a lot of, you know, inferiority complex. And, you know, it can be a feather in your cap to say, okay, well, we had those, you know, almost two decades there, you know, the Earl Weaver years that uh, our team was the best in all of baseball. Mm -hmm. The Orioles way. (laughs) That's right. Um, Pitching defense and three run homers is a, you know, very tough formula to crack. (laughs) I'm so torn on this because on the one hand, like the ring thing, particularly for Yankees fans, is like wildly (laughs) annoying. But also, agreed. if we say, no, no, you're not able to lay claim to and hearken back to this legacy, then we give rise to a different kind of annoying Yankees fan. The underdog Yankees fan. The the sad Yankees fan. The mm. we haven't oh, won forbid. anything Yankees fan. And and I submit sorry, Yankees fans, many of you are lovely and all fan bases have their bits of nonsense and and have the capacity to be awful. So this is not um unique <laughs> to Yankees fans. Don't 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 you all fret. This is not targeted. But I think that the the whiny Yankees fan is is arguably the worst kind of Yankees fan than the than the self-aggrandizing Yankees fan. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't had to deal with it in division in the same way that you have, Kevin. So your perspective on this is probably better informed than mine. But I have had the experience of being a Mariners fan working in New York and told in literally 
2010. I can't believe you guys won in 95. I was like, didn't you just win a World Series? Like, what are we doing here? So I don't know. I I think that maybe the solution is to tell Yankees fans that they can't speak at all for a while while we sort things out. Just while we're figuring it out, you guys. Just while we're... You know, while we're getting to the bottom of this of this baseball mystery, we should just ask them to sit quietly. Right. Yeah, I guess this question is no more relevant to you than it is to Mike the Brewers right. fan, Meg. Sadly, yeah, I have but- no. I will say I have experience with being a, a part of a fan base that experiences temporary joy at being really dominant, and then uses that to be obnoxious as hell to other people for like a while, and then your quarterback ends up playing in Denver, and you're like really hoisted on your own petard at that point. Yeah. So I don't know if that's super relevant to this conversation but i remember when the cubs won the world series i was like you don't have to be like we were and they were like no we will be though (laughs) yeah or say the red Sox. (laughs) sure that that took a real turn right yeah i mean at least yankees fans in theory are balanced out by having to root for the giants or the jets right like you have some potential equilibrium and like the knicks is its own that's its own separate bit of nonsense so like you you maybe have some countervailing forces that help to level you if you're a red sox fan it's like oh no you're just really experiencing a lot of championships in your city and or region in quick succession across multiple sports what hope what hope do you have for modesty you know for humility very little i would imagine yeah, we're gonna get emails about this <laughs> earlier that it's sort of silly to claim credit, but I guess that's inherent in fandom. Yeah. I mean, if you're not taking some pride in your team winning a World Series, then what's the point? Why are you rooting for them? So the idea of gloating over another fan base, yes, it's silly. I guess all fandom is sort of silly in a way, but also it can be very rewarding and in moderation, it can be a lot of fun and the gloating and the trash talking can be a lot of fun. So I think that if you are a fan, you should claim all of the titles that you could convincingly claim And if you are trying to gloat over someone, then they should then retaliate and respond and say, well, that was before you were born. Like, it's sad that you're still claiming that, right? And that can be part of the back and forth. So I think you are entitled as a fan to claim credit. And then it should be the comeback from whomever you are going back and forth with to say, like, that shouldn't count or that was ancient history, right? And uh, maybe they can use a different era and a different set of years to make a point that favors their team so yeah it is all very silly but fandom is just kind of tribalism that hopefully plays out in a fun non-violent low stakes way (laughs) although that is not always the case obviously but as long as it is sure Try to take credit for that. And then, you know, if you're the Yankees, you can beat your chest and say we're the Yankees and we have 27 rings. And if you're some other fan base that has not won as much, then, yeah, you get the underdog thing. You get other qualities. You're more sympathetic. You're more likable. Whatever it is, you can come back and say, oh, you bought your championships. I mean, whatever. Like, people know the script and the playbook here. So, yeah, go for it. But also be prepared to be taken down a peg. Yeah, and mostly don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah, 
that too. That'd be right. nice. And, you know, like we are often given the invitation for escalation in fandom. We're given the invitation to become worse and we can, <laughs> we can decline it politely even and say, no, mm -hmm. we shall, we shall simply have a good time and feel some feelings and have camaraderie and then go about our day. Mm -hmm. All right. Question from Jacob. My brother and I are lifelong A's fans, but we simply cannot bring ourselves to root for the A's this year for a number of obvious reasons. The roster teardown, the terrible owner, the constant threats to leave Oakland, and more. We are not yet ready to give up the A's for good, and we also don't want to sit out the 2022 season entirely. Can you tell us who we should root for instead that would most replicate the things that we have enjoyed about following the A's, the cool underdog vibe, while also providing us with baseball we can enjoy? And we get a fair number of questions in this genre of just like, I'm done with my team. You know, maybe it's like a Red Sox fan who's upset about Mookie Betts or it's a Cubs fan who's upset about the Ricketts or whatever it is. And they just feel like they can't support that team anymore. And I do understand that sentiment. At the same time, I try to caution them. You might find some things not to like about the other <laughs> franchises, too. Like, they will all break your heart and disappoint oh, you yeah. in some way. And they are all owned by billionaires who maybe have some unsavory stuff in their past. I mean, most of them at some point will employ a player you have reason to dislike. They're not all cute and cuddly. And so if you switch loyalties because you don't like the current ownership group or you don't like something that team did and you gravitate toward another team, well, you might be playing musical chairs and it might just be having to switch from one to another. So I am not suggesting that you should just support the team that you grew up rooting for, that you happen to live near just, you know, for the rest of your life if it is not bringing you happiness anymore. But I'm also saying the grass might be greener, but the reality might not actually. But if you're an A's fan, I mean, I guess, Kevin, you know, you've stuck with the Orioles during their teardown, right? And you have found things to enjoy about that, even if it's just going to the ballpark. If you're an A's fan, I would say, you know, at least they haven't completely tanked in the way that some teams have. I mean, they haven't bottomed out nearly as deep down as the Orioles have in recent years, let's say. So there are things to enjoy about the A's, even if it's not ownership, but the fact that they are just constantly threatening to leave and trying to extract sweetheart deals on a ballpark out of the city, etc. I can see why that would be tough to root for. So I don't know. I mean, you could root for former A's players. If you like Matt Chapman and Matt Olson, you can root for them in their new duds or... I guess, is there an A's-like team, a team that has some A's-like vibe that they could transfer their loyalties to? Well, I will say that obviously <laughs> kind of keeping my interest in baseball as my team loses 110 games a year <laughs> uh, presents some challenge. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the nice perks of season ticket ownership with the Orioles is an MLB TV membership mm -hmm. that's complimentary. And I don't know if that's a league-wide thing. It may be. But when I'm sitting at home on nights when I don't have tickets, I do not always have it in me to watch three hours of <laughs> Ramon Urias and DJ Stewart 
and understandable. You know, he has any number of other fungible players. So I have taken a liking to the Brewers in recent years. And, you know, that seems like a, a nice sort of compromise that they're in the National League. They are, you know, again, I feel like you get that kind of underdog vibe that, you know, they're never the uh, highest payroll team in mm-hmm. the biggest market, you know, if you care about those sort of things. And, you know, they're also, they tend to have a, a lot of fun likable guys to watch um you know and they just added uh andrew mccutcheon so that you know again Mm -hmm. bodes well for the future so that would just be my suggestion you know it's been a little disappointing that they haven't been able to make a deeper postseason run in recent years but i'm sort of a uh you know an auxiliary uh brewers fan i guess you could say at this point Mm mm-hmm I think the Brewers are a really good National League option. And then, and I know this is going to be hard to hear, but you should just root for the Mariners. <laughs> they should just root for the Mariners. I mean, they, you know, it's not as if it doesn't solve the, the gnarly ownership stuff because, gosh, have the Mariners had some gnarly ownership stuff in the last couple of years or at least senior executive stuff. But I would say, like, you know, if you can stomach keeping it in division, you could – you could root for the the upstart Mariners and all of their exciting young prospects who are either in the majors or soon to be in the majors. You can get excited about Jesse Winker and his long, long neck. You know, you got that long neck out there in the outfield. Um, they have the they they signed the reigning AL Cy Young winner. The those Mariners did a move that I definitely remembered before yesterday. So. <laughs> Um, you know, if you can deal with the division rival aspect of it, you could root for this team to finally break their playoff drought and make a little bit of a run. Think about it this way. If you're an A's fan, let me speak to you. I know that you probably don't care for the Mariners as a division rival, but I bet you like the Astros less. So you could be rooting for Seattle to win the division and unseat Houston. And and maybe that's satisfying to you in a little bit of a spoilery way. But yeah, I think that when you when you look at the potential playoff field in both the AL and the NL, there's a lot of recent playoff appearance here. And I realize that anyone's playoff appearance is going to be more recent than Seattle's. But, like, it's just they might be the only ones who qualify apart from, I guess, like, you could also root for the Angels. You could root yeah. for the Angels and mm-hmm. decide that you're just really in on Otani and Trout. But mm-hmm. if if what you are looking for is an unobjectionable owner, I don't think, like you said, Ben, there are drawbacks to all of them. But of the three teams that we have just named, the Brewers, the Mariners, and the Angels, I do think that Milwaukee's ownership group is probably the least irritating of all of those. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say this. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what you just said about ownership would not necessarily apply, but would it be heresy to just jump to the Giants? And stay no. within the Bay Area. I mean, I don't know. I know How do people a, feel about the Bay Area yeah, rivalry? I mean, right. I, I know there's like the Bay Bridge series or the Battle of the Bay or the Bart series or whatever, but I feel like there's not as much animosity 
in that as there is in other intracity rivalries like it it seems like they're kind of okay with each other maybe that's a misread out here from the east coast i don't know but if you want just like that vibe of going to a's games and kind of that laid back atmosphere then you would get that with the giants and if they're in the bay area then they still get to go see the team regularly and I don't know if they're underdogs in the same way that the A's are, but they are kind of underdogs in that division. I know that's odd to say because they just won that division and won 107 games, and yet the Dodgers are just such a juggernaut, and the Padres are really good too, that I feel like there's still a lot of skepticism about the Giants. Can they do it again? Can they keep this up? So I think there's still a bit of underdog to them. There certainly was before last year. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is a question from William, Patreon supporter. So with the universal DH now in effect, is this going to hurt our ability to standardize stats across eras? I recall that someone had used pitcher batting as a tool to compare hitters from different eras. What will the elimination of pitcher batting do to those stats? And he is referring there to something that I've said before about how we can use the level of pitcher offense to kind of track the level, the caliber of competition in the league as a whole. And I think I've made this comp before because I'm kind of an astronomy nerd, but I, I think of pitcher batting as a standard candle, which in astronomy, one way that you can measure the distances to things is via various celestial objects that are known as standard candles. And the nice thing about them is that they have a, a known luminosity. You know how bright they are. And so depending on how bright they appear to you, you can determine how far away they actually are. And then you can use those to measure the distance to other things and figure out the distance to even more distant objects in this cosmic distance ladder. So that's how I kind of think of pitcher batting. It's just this constant, basically, because pitchers are not really recruited for their offensive abilities. And maybe that's become even more true in recent years, but they don't train for that. They're not selected for that. And so if you think that that's kind of constant, probably not totally constant because pitchers have gotten bigger and stronger and more athletic and everything, but they are not improving at the same rate as the rest of the league. So that's my one lament maybe about losing pitcher hitting is that we have lost that way to track the better level of play in the league. But aside from that, do you see it as a problem statistically speaking? I mean, you maybe have to make some adjustments here and there to account for the fact that pitchers are not eating up some plate appearances every year. Yeah, I guess like it does at the margins affect how AL we might think about AL pitchers performance relative to NL, but I don't know. It doesn't strike me as like a super meaningful problem. I don't know. Ben, what mm-hmm. do you, I think it's fine. I think it's fine is what yeah. I think I'm coming away from this with. Like we, we will have some mental adjustment, I guess, for guys saying like, oh, now all of a sudden you have to face real hitters in those spots relative to the starter, but it's not so, so many plate appearances, you know? Mm-hmm. Like after, and especially with starters going less deep into games, like the yeah. the number of actual pitcher plate appearances that NL teams are seeing was probably, I would imagine, on a decline over the years, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think it's probably fine. I mean, it's definitely in there, but I don't think it's going to like alter the way that we think about a guy. It's not like we're going to go, oh, we, we thought he was 
he was like really uh, excellent, but it turns out he was just, you know, feasting on bad NL starters. I don't think that there are guys where that's really the the thing Mm -hmm. that's tipping their performance one way or the other. Yeah, it was a very low percentage of overall plate appearances, even in the National League in recent years. And pitchers were so bad at batting that it did disproportionately drag averages down just because they were striking out close to half the time lately. But I don't think it makes a huge difference in the overall numbers. I think you do have to adjust like if you want to track the progress of certain things over time. Like I believe that last year, for example, the strikeout rate, I mean, it made sense to if you were going to compare the strikeout rate in 2021 with the strikeout rate in 2020, then because generally from year to year, we're talking about a a small change one way or another league-wide, it made sense to compare the non-pitcher strikeout rate. And if you did that, I think you found that There actually wasn't, uh, I mean, last year was the first time in like 15 years that the league-wide strikeout rate did not increase. And part of that was uh, because of the lack of sticky stuff and Mm -hmm. the fact that strikeout rate went down after that was banned. But also, I think even if you compared position players to position players one year over the next, if you factor in the sticky stuff, it didn't increase because otherwise you might have thought, well, that's just because, uh, you know, or like in 2020, for instance, when you implement the universal DH, you might think, oh, well, the strikeout rate streak will stop because uh, now pitchers won't be hitting. So you do have to make slight adjustments for that kind of thing when you're calibrating year to year. But otherwise, I don't think it actually matters that much. But, you know, you might see a a little boost of batting average or other rate stats, and you just have to be mindful of that, but not necessarily more so than other changes that are constantly affecting offense. I mean, ballparks coming in and out of circulation or the ball itself changing, it's just constantly shifting and evolving and there are all sorts of factors that you need to adjust for so just add this to the list yeah that's kind of going into what i was thinking about this question which is that sort of the context of baseball is always changing you know if you go from the color line being broken to you know the expansion era to you know, lowering the mound in the Mm -hmm. uh, late 1960s is, you know, I I know that a lot of baseball at a glance seems unchanging, but, you know, there's always a different, there are always different context clues. And, you know, we do have advanced statistics to, to adjust for eras, to adjust for leagues and ballparks. And, you know, smarter people than you and me will figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing to be aware of maybe, and Russell Carlton just wrote this this week, he found that the DH penalty, which is something we've discussed before, the idea that hitters generally perform worse when they are DHing than when they are playing the field. And you see the same sort of thing with pinch hitters and the pinch hit penalty. And the idea has always been, well, they're just not ready. They're not primed. They're not warmed up. They're trying to come in cold and there needs to be a little adjustment period. And this is, you know, partly maybe just the fact that you're not seeing the pitcher multiple times in that game, but I don't think it's just that times through the order effect. 
And there's been some speculation that, well, maybe it's the fact that when you DH, maybe you're more likely to be nursing some sort of injury or you're tired and you're DHing because you're getting a day off. And so maybe that accounts for it. But it does seem to be a pretty real effect. But what Russell found this week, actually, is that it doesn't seem to apply so much to players who spend the majority of their time at DH. Like if you DH three quarters of the time and a quarter of the time you play the field, it doesn't seem like you do suffer a DH penalty. Whereas if it's reversed and you're playing the field three quarters of the time and DHing a quarter of the time, then you do hit worse when you're DHing. And I guess there could be a number of explanations for that, but one might be that you just get acclimated to DHing and you know how to keep yourself in the game and take some swings in the cage between at bats or whatever you have to do and you just get used to it and as Russell pointed out that may account for some of the difference in the American League's performance relative to the National League in interleague play over the past couple of decades because even though the National League did have DHs in interleague games They were often players who were not regularly DHing and were just pressed into service, whereas the AL would be more likely to have your Nelson Cruz's and your David Ortiz is who not only would be, you know, dedicated DHs and and would be good hitters, but also would be used to the job and not suffer a penalty relative to their typical performance. So that doesn't account for all of the interleague play league difference, but there might be a bit of that there. So If you are comparing interleague performance going forward, you might have to keep that in mind. But will anyone care about interleague play anymore? Probably not, right? I mean, it seems like it's just archaic at this point. Who cares about AL versus NL? There's just no distinction between them anymore, you know? Yeah, particularly when we're going to go to having a schedule where everybody plays every team, you know? Yes. There's like the... The mystery of it all seems like it's going to be diminished in any number of ways, right? Right. Okay. Well, that'll do it. And Kevin, I was remiss in not asking before if you want to share anything about yourself and what you do aside from Suffer Through Orioles games. But if you want to tell us anything on your way out or plug anything or places where people can find you if they want to find you and if you want them to find you, (laughs) then please do. Well, I'm on Twitter at Bratz13, B-R-O-T-Z 13. I don't know that I'm very active there as a poster, but... Smart, smart guy. (laughs) Yeah, I I still read Twitter way too much. That's the thing. (laughs) But yeah, maybe some baseball content there, a a little bit of uh, pro wrestling. You know, I'm Uh in that... Venn diagram interlap <laughs> with seemingly so many people. Yes. Yeah. I am a uh, an avid baseball card collector. Uh-huh. You know, that's been kind of a, a big part of my love language with the sport mm-hmm. and you know, probably how kind of the the statistics of it all hooked me, you know, looking at, at card backs. Um even before I was a, a fan, you know, I had family members that you know, kind of gave me those same cards from the 80s that I think everyone has, you know, closets Mm -hmm. and lockers full of. So I did do blogging for a a number of years. So that stuff is uh, still online if you want to look for it. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, I 
completed the 1965 Topps baseball card set. Oh, and, wow. You know, that was something that was in, in large part through the generosity of other collectors. You know, it was just, I was, you know, writing about it and kind of in the vein of um, like the one paperclip thing. It was, you know, hey, if anybody has any cards from this set that they don't necessarily need like you know kind of make me an offer and you know it kind of picked up some momentum over the years and i think i'd say probably within five years it's a 598 card set i was able to complete and obviously um, some of them have a lot more wear and tear than others you know i've I wasn't picky about what I got back. So, you know, I've got a, uh, for instance, a Bob Gibson card that looks like it was spindled, folded, and mutilated. And, you know, it, it might have even been in the spokes of a bicycle at some point, but is still recognizable as a Bob Gibson card. And that's kind of one of my points of pride and fandom. Cool. So, otherwise, yeah, it's just been a, a pleasure to talk to both of you and to be a part of effectively wild yeah well thanks for being here and thanks to janet for making it possible for you to be here as well and we're glad that you're still listening to and enjoying the show so thanks pleasure having you on good to talk to you kevin all right thank you ben make all right that will do it for today and for this week thanks as always for listening As I sign off here late on Friday afternoon, there's still some good free agents to be had. Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Nick Castellanos, Kenley Jansen, Michael Conforto, Michael Pineda, Jorge Soler, Tommy Pham, Albert Pujols, of course. All still out there, but maybe they won't be by the time you hear from us again. Maybe the Rockies can sign several of them and make Chris Bryant's dream of contending in 2022 come true. We've been talking this week about teams that are tearing down. Not sure I would bet on the Rockies to be good again before the A's, let's say, who are strip mining their roster right now. I feel like I kind of trust them to get back into contention before the Rockies get there. Not that either is in an enviable position right now. Also, shout out to new Cubs edition Seiya Suzuki, who will be wearing number 27 with his new team. And when asked why, he said, Mike Trout looked into the camera and said, I love you. Don't we all? You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon, as Kevin does, by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help keep us going and help us stay ad-free while getting yourself access to extras. The following five listeners have done so as well. Walker J. Gunning, Billy Z, Michael Mancini, Francis Higgins, and Alec. And they and other supporters can, of course, get access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group, monthly bonus episodes with me and Meg, and many other extras. Everyone, not just Patreon supporters, can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance today and this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will start some division previews next week, so we will be back to talk to you very soon. Thank you.